Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we will read verses 9 through 14. Let us now give our attention to God's infallible word. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your many blessings to us, chiefly for our full redemption and forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus. Would you open our eyes, make our hearts good and fertile soil to receive your word now, to bear an inheritance and an abundant harvest for your glory. Please mold us to his image by the power of your spirit, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. It is equally true that the elect will certainly persevere to the end, and that they must persevere to the end. The elect will persevere. It is an abstraction to say that the elect may not persevere. It is certainly true that the good work that God has begun in the elect, he will certainly bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. They must persevere as well. It is not an option for God's people not to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. We are to work in ourselves because God works in us. The Colossians made a good beginning in the faith, and Paul commends them for it, but he tells them in this passage to keep continuing in what, where they have begun. A good beginning must be finished, or else it will be wasted. And that is the context of this passage. Epaphras ministered to the Colossians and took a good report back to Paul, and apparently he had nothing but good things to say to him, because Paul incessantly gives thanks to God for the good beginning they made in the faith, and he tells them here that he is praying for them to continue as they have begun. He is praying for their perseverance in Christ by the power of the Spirit. So this passage then, being about the perseverance of the saints, we see, first of all, what the means of perseverance is. The means of perseverance. Peter O'Brien comments that this paragraph shows that Paul was a true pastor. He was grateful to God for the Colossians' progress, but he also wanted them to grow in their understanding and godly behavior. Perseverance is certain. It is not a question mark. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But election does not lead to glorification immediately. The good work does not happen all at once. There is further sanctification. 
there is necessarily a progressive aspect to redemption. Perseverance does not come automatically. Paul is not a fatalist. He does not say, you've begun well, so I guess I have nothing else to say to you. No, he fervently prays for their greater growth in grace. And that is the key means of perseverance we see in verse 9, the power of prayer. Prayer is the effectual means by which God is pleased to sanctify his people. Notice in verse 9, he says that he has not ceased to pray for the Colossians. Paul was characterized by prayer. He prayed incessantly. He was constantly offering up his desires to God in the name of Christ by the help of the Spirit. Paul knew, as James 5.16 would say later, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, children, you may know the name Charles Hodge. He's a stalwart in Presbyterian Reformed systematic theology, one of the, the, the giants at Princeton Seminary in the late 1800s. And you're, he's best known for his big three-volume systematic theology. But when he was a child... Raised in the Presbyterian church, taught the catechism, taught the scriptures. He was taught that prayer is simply asking God for what I need and thanking God for what I have. It's that simple. And actually, as he reflected as an adult upon his life as a child, he said that in his childhood, he was more prayerful than any other point in his life. Even looking for toys around the house, he would just ask God to help him to find them. He was most prayerful even as a child. So for children and for all of us, we can know that we can ask God for what we need and thank God for what we have, and that is the simple life of prayer. In the words of David McIntyre, prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. What then is the purpose of Paul's prayer? What is he praying for in verse 9? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In context, verse 5 Paul says that you receive the word of truth, the gospel. And so the knowledge of God's will here in verse 9 is knowledge of God's word. In the words of Calvin, God's will is not to be sought anywhere else than in his word. Scripture is the utmost of the utmost necessity. It is not optional in the growth of grace of the Christian. There is no saving knowledge of God without the knowledge of the word. We confess the sufficiency of Scripture. That everything that we need to know for life and godliness, especially what we need to know to be made right with God, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. But there are so many subtle ways we can sneak in the insufficiency of Scripture in the back door. Yes, I believe that Scripture is sufficient, but I do believe also that God speaks to me personally. But I also think I need to supplement things with reason. I also believe that I need to supplement Scripture with something else from my experience. There are various subtle ways we can actually deny the sufficiency of Scripture, but the knowledge of God's will and being filled with it is being filled with the knowledge of God's Word. And we must keep that clear in our minds. So knowledge of God's will is absolutely necessary. And that's true as far as it goes. It's not the whole truth, however. How is the knowledge of God's will attained? The rest of verse 9. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding... The Christian life is not a matter of downloading information, is not emulating the Pharisees, having a merely external, formalistic, cold, dead orthodoxy, but it is the illumination of the Spirit, 
The Spirit must sovereignly grant wisdom to savingly understand the Word. Now you notice that my interpretation of the word spiritual there in verse 9 is that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. In the words of Gaffin, in Paul's usage, spiritual always has reference to the specific activity of the Holy Spirit. There is one exception to that. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaking about the putting on the armor of God and the evil demonic forces that are present in the world. Spiritual there is a reference to that warfare. So with the exception of Ephesians 6, everywhere in the New Testament, the adjective spiritual is not something ethereal or immaterial. It is a reference to the saving work of the Holy Spirit. Even from context, it couldn't be otherwise. If we were to replace spiritual with immaterial and have it read, in all immaterial wisdom and understanding, that would be either redundant or meaningless, or both. Wisdom and understanding is from the Holy Spirit. And so, that must accompany the knowledge of God's will. The Holy Spirit must work with the Word. He must graciously grant wisdom and understanding that we may know the Word rightly. This could be rightly seen as the Pauline equivalent of the wisdom literature. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and, under, and, and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, beginning at verse 1. Read to the beginning of verse 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Obvious reference there to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was endowed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, and in his life, death, and resurrection, he was ascended on high, led captivity captive, gave gifts to men, and he pours out his Spirit upon the church, that same Spirit of wisdom and understanding that he first had in his humiliation and exaltation. 1 Corinthians one thirty says that, Paul, that Christ became wisdom from God. Colossians 2.3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. Wisdom and knowledge and the spirit of those things all come from Christ as he pours out his spirit upon the Pentecostal church. So then from this, even from this verse, do you see the power of prayer, a necessary means of perseverance? Do you see the importance of God's word? Do you see the necessity of the spirit? Perseverance must have all three of these aspects or there is no perseverance. There is an irreducible complexity of these things. If any one is gone, there is no perseverance of the saints. So we see, secondly, the goal of Paul's prayer for perseverance, verses 10 through 11a. Here we see the reason for Paul's incessant prayer for the Colossians. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The things Paul is praying for 
are to manifest in the whole life of the believer. Walking in a manner of the, worthy of the Lord, the entire life of the, of the believer, is in view here. Paul's prayer ultimately is for the, the totality of the believer's life to be characterized by what we saw in verse 9. Prayer, dependence upon the Spirit, and knowledge of the Word. Fully pleasing to Him. Or in another way, to please Him in all ways. This word for pleasing here is the only time it's used in the New Testament. But it is used once in, in the Septuagint, in Proverbs 31.30. You're familiar with the, the chapter of the virtuous wife. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. The word for charm there is the same word we have here in Colossians 1.10 for pleasing to the Lord. And that's its usual usage in a negative aspect. In servile fear or deceptive charm, aiming to merit right standing with someone on the unsure ground of a, of a wrong relationship. That's not how Paul is using it here. It is only positive. In Christ, you are fully pleasing to God. So, be fully pleasing to God. Grow in what you already have and are in Christ. Because you are fully pleasing to him, you can then be fully pleasing to him. What this does not mean, walking in a manner worthy of God, does not mean to walk perfectly. That, that is not possible until the new heavens and new earth. Fully pleasing to God does not mean meriting favor with God. The key to remember here is that this paragraph is about the progressive aspect of union with Christ. They are to grow in what they already have. It can barely be improved, how the standards put it, in Confession of Faith, chapter 16, paragraph 6, chapter on good works. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ... Their good works are also accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. We can be fully pleasing to God because we are fully pleasing to God in Christ, and God is pleased to accept that which is sincere for his glory. Notice at the end of verse 10. Bearing fruit, and, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You notice that language of organic growth, arboreal imagery, farming imagery. Well, elsewhere, Paul talks about the Christian as a new creation in Christ. In the terms of the parable of the sower, the seed has been received by good soil. And in Mark's version, the seed then bears a harvest of of 30-fold, 60-fold, and some 100-fold. In terms of Christ's words in John 15, that he is the vine, and in him we are the branches, and so the branches can then be fruitful in him. Just as a farmer cultivates his field for greater and greater harvest, so the believer must cultivate greater growth in God's grace. So here we see the language of bearing fruit and increasing, not in literal arboreal terminology, but in good works and in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power. There's a wordplay going on here. The noun and the participle have the same root, so it could be rendered 
powerfully empowered or strengthened, strengthened with strength, something, something to that effect. It is only by the powerful working of God's glory and might in us that God's people have the endurance and patience to complete the race set before us, as Hebrews 12 puts it. Notice the, the abundance of the empowering in this verse. According to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, the abundance of God's provision for us in our perseverance. It is not according to our strength. If it were so, we would fall away innumerable times. It is only by his abundant provision of his glorious might, which he powerfully works within us. Thirdly, we see the ground of our perseverance. The ground of our perseverance from verses 12 to 14. Everything we have seen thus far would be meaningless. It would evaporate if it were not for what we see here. We see, first of all, under this final point, the Father's qualification. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is the Father who qualifies. It is the elect who are qualified. They are wholly passive. Only God, by his mere good pleasure and free grace, qualifies those to have an inheritance in his Son. God's electing grace. A share in the inheritance. This word has, has in view a connection with the distribution of a conquered country. As we heard from Ephesians 4 earlier, that in his ascension, Christ led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. There was a distribution of the spoils. There was giving of the inheritance. The inheritance idea elsewhere in Paul has in view the future glory together with Christ, eternal life, resurrection body on the last day, the new heavens and the new earth. All these things, all the aspects of the glorious inheritance for the saints, all because the Father has graciously qualified us in Christ to have all these things and more. Notice that it is out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, to use Peter's language. That is the inheritance of the saints in light. And it is not merely for the individual Colossians. It is not merely for us as individuals. It is for all the saints. We do not arrive at the new heavens and new earth until we all arrive together. Secondly, under this final point, we see the Father's deliverance and transfer. Verse 13. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The from to pattern, absolutely irreversible. It is impossible for God's people to go back to the domain of darkness. Think of Romans 6 and the death resurrection analogy there. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again, so those who, who are united to him by faith are raised from the dead, never to die again. Absolutely irreversible from to movement. Historically speaking, based in the Exodus, just as Israel was led out of slavery and the bondage of Egypt, going to the promised land with bumps along the way, they never did return back to Egypt. And so all those who are united to Christ have an exodus out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 
We are members of God's kingdom, the special fellowship with God by faith in the bond of covenant, the kingdom that Christ established in his first coming as he bound the strong man and as he instituted the kingdom on earth, what was not there previously, that that could not have been there previously because the king had not yet come, but we now living in the fullness of time are members of that kingdom by faith in God's grace. Also we see in verse, in verse 14, redemption in the Son. You'll notice up to this point that we've only been speaking about the Father in verse 13. Some conceptions are that Christ had to come to earth to assuage an angry Father, twist his arm to convince the Father to receive Christ's people, the ones for whom he died. No, it is the Father who qualified us to have a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It was the Father who delivered us from the domain of darkness and put us in the kingdom of his Son. There's a relative priority upon the Father's work here. And now we turn to the work of the Son. Verse 14 answers two questions. What is redemption? In a nutshell, Paul goes on at great length many places, but what is it in a nutshell? Redemption is simply the forgiveness of sins. The canceling of the record of debt we have against God, which was nailed to Christ's cross, which, which no longer applies to us. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. It also answers the question, where is redemption? It is in Christ, the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. Redemption is the full, free forgiveness of sins, and it is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see all tenses of God's electing purposes here. In eternity past, God elected some in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Son willfully took them to himself, agreed to become man in time, to die in their place and be raised for their justification. And in our lives, by faith, the Spirit-wrought work of God in our lives, we are united to Christ and so fully redeemed with an imperishable inheritance. Eternity past, elect in Christ. In the past, before we were born, Christ died and rose again. And now in our, in our lives, by the Spirit-wrought work of faith, we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and have all these glorious things true of us. And it is for all these reasons, aspects of the ground of our perseverance, that we will finally make it to the last day and not fall away by God's grace. So then do you see the Trinitarian, the fully Trinitarian nature of our redemption? It is not the Son who comes, hoping that the Father will accept his sacrifice. It is the Father who gives the Son his elect people. It is the Son who willingly comes, becoming man in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin, made a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And so bringing forth positive righteousness for his people, having taken away the debt that we owe to God in the Spirit, fully, perfectly applying the work of Christ to us and us to Christ. The full love of God, the redeeming work of Christ, and the whole renewing power of the Spirit, all are at work here, all are relevant for our perseverance to the end. The perseverance of God's redeemed people is certain. It is not a question mark. In prayerful dependence upon the Lord, in the constant filling of the knowledge of his will, and the powerful working of the Spirit, you and I will reach our heavenly inheritance. So may we 
work in ourselves because it is, that God, it is God who is at work in us. God's people said,